So there are few things in life that are as disgusting as crooked judges. Now, I don't know where you want to go with that. Uh, some of you watch TV all the time, so you've got something on your mind right now where you are thinking about a crooked judge. I was a young teenager when Vicki Lawrence's hit song came out. That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's the night that they hung an innocent man. You remember that song? I didn't fully understand that song because I was really too young at the time uh, to really know what it was all about. But I do know that it, there was some sense of terrible injustice that was done because the tag on that song was because the judge in the town has got bloodstains on his hands. Crooked judges are disgusting. Few things turn loving, ironic parents into hot messes quicker than inept Little League baseball umpires. If you want to see that sweet young couple turn belligerent, wait until the umpire calls little Johnny out on a third strike. Judges really get to us, don't they? Honestly, I'm concerned about next week's chili cook-off. <laughs> I've not signed up yet as an entrant because you, know, you guys have been around forever. You know the judges. The judges know you. I'm just concerned that outsiders don't really stand a chance. We'll see, I suppose. I'll tell you another thing that we get hot and bothered by is when people get special treatment because of just who they are. Most of you, well, not most of you, some of you know that I was in naval intelligence. I handled extremely sensitive, compartmented information every day of my life. And I can tell you this much. If I would have ever walked out of a sensitive, compartmented information facility, otherwise known as a skiff, if I would have ever left a skiff with top secret code word intelligence and taken that home with me and NCIS had found out about it, I would have been severely reprimanded. And that's if I had no ill intentions. But if by some wild stretch of the imagination that I had a secret computer server in my apartment or folders of classified material in my garage or my home, I'd still be in Leavenworth Prison. The fact is, when it comes to being judged either on a football field by a referee, or in a courtroom by a trial judge, we all just want what's right. Or at least that's what we say we want. Have you given much thought to how we will be judged when it's all said and done by the way we've lived our lives? 
Uh, that's the subject of Romans chapter 2. If I had to subhead that on my own, I would subhead Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 this way. The righteous judge judges righteously. Where does the idea, though, of a final judgment even come about? Let me just briefly give you just a little bit of biblical basis for the final judgment. Just listen to, uh, this is from Revelation. It says this, Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had, anybody want to fill in the blank? Done. According to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31 give a little insight into this final judgment. It says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is not a message per se on the final judgment. These brief verses, however, give us or assure to us three things. Number one, there will be final judgment. Number two, Jesus Christ is the final judge. And number three, believers and unbelievers alike will be judged in some sense by what we have done. So, Jesus judges. How does that look? Our text today addresses that question and it will reveal three characteristics of God's judgment, or three answers to the question, how does God judge? How does God judge? So the answer, number one, is this. God judges truthfully. Let's go back to our text today, which is Romans chapter 2. God judges truthfully. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves. We said last week the verses 18 through 32 really focused on the Gentiles, right? Those who were not of Abraham's lineage. They did not receive the law on tablets of stone. And we saw that even though God has revealed Himself to all people through nature, mankind has suppressed the truth that He knows about God. And so the result is God's wrath, His holy anger is poured out now. Not in some future time, but God's holy wrath is poured out now by giving man over to the sin that he so desperately craves. 
And we talked last week how that the Bible shows how homosexuality is proof positive that man has fallen into spiritual morass and has completely lost his moral compass. And then we looked at uh, the end of chapter 1 of Romans, and in the end of chapter 1, it basically tells us how God views mankind at this time. Verses 28 through 31 say this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, let me just preface this. As, we, as I read through this, just remember, this is the way God sees you and me outside of Christ. This is how He sees us. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. This is, this is, this is dark stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> they are gossips, slanderers, Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And since these verses we said last week were directed or they're indictments of the Gentiles, you can just picture a, a Jew, Mr. Jew, hearing Paul pour out all this indictment on the Gentiles and Mr. Jew say, yeah, you get them, Paul. That's exactly right. That's exactly who they are. All puffed up and saying, after all, that's not describing me. We're Jewish. God chose us. The blood in my veins is the blood that was in Abraham's. We're God's chosen. I'm safe because I'm part of the family of God. And Paul says, you hypocrite. Who do you think you are? You judge others' actions, you condemn others' actions, and yet you are guilty of the exact same thing. Do you think just because of your family ties that you can live a hypocritical life and get away with it? In verse 2 we see the righteous judge sees through the smoke and he judges based on the truth. Now all, all of us have heard of hypocrites. We know what hypocrites are. The word hypocrite basically means pretending to be what you're not. It has ties to ancient um, theater. The word picture, or the, the, is, is you remember in, in Greek um, theater, they wore those huge masks, right? Well, the word means to, to look under the mask. It's to pretend, it's to, it's to be someone that you're really not. And Jesus has some very harsh words for the hypocrites. He's talking to the religious leaders and He says to them, Woe to you, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you're beautiful, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanlessness. Paul is basically saying, Woe to you, Mr. Jew, because on the outside, you judge and condemn the Gentiles, but inside, you're just like them. 
There's no difference. So let's bring this a little closer to home. Because surely this would apply to us in some ways, right? I can't tell you the number of times, not so much here because I don't know, uh, I don't know you this, that well, but after serving a people uh, and knowing a people 16 or 17 years, you begin to know people and you, you understand what makes them tick and you understand the, you know, maybe their, their uh, sinful nature. We all have it, but you know where someone is obstinate or someone is controlling or someone or whatever it might be. You, I can't tell you the number of times that I've preached a message and I've looked at in a congregation and in my, in my mind I'm going, I sure hope he's understanding this message is for him. This is this is going. This should be going straight to your heart, and and you know the worship service is over, and immediately when it's over, that particular guy, sure enough, that particular guy rushes up to you and grabs your hand and shakes your hand and says, "Pastor, I am so thankful you preached that that message today. It's so shameful, though, that the people who needed to hear it weren't here. I'm not making that up. It happens. So." The lesson learned, don't ever come up to me and say, you know, don't ever say that. Because chances are you might have been the one that that message was geared toward. And let me just kind of do a little qualifier here, a little, little small print. Uh, as, as I'm like working on messages or pastors are working on messages, they, they usually aren't, shouldn't be like singled someone out and going, I'm sure I'm designing this one and I hope this arrow finds its target. It, it, it doesn't work that way, right? But sometimes it just, it's just the way it is. Well, Paul here, he's, he says, don't think God doesn't know your hypocrisy when he's talking to the Jew. He says, you judge others, you're judging them through your filthy heart, through your ulterior motives. But listen, there will come a day when the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus, He will judge your actions and your thoughts and your motivations, not based on whims, but based on truth. That's the litmus test for judgment. It's truth. You know, you can fool your coworkers when you guys go out to eat lunch or when you sit around a lunch table together or whatever. You can fool them and eat salads all the time and skip desserts. But when you get home, you gouge yourself with cake and pies and cookies and that's just the main course and you, fi you finish it off with dessert of little Debbie's. You see, you can, you can fool the people at work on the outside. But listen, when the doctor reads out your cholesterol numbers and lipids and triglycerides, there's no fooling the doctor. Why? Because the doctor will be judging on the truth. None of us are immune from hypocrisy, are we? Many years ago when I, I was in seminary and we were members of a local church, um, the, the chairman of the deacons and his wife took Kim and me out to lunch after church one Sunday. And I have to just preface this by saying, they were wonderful people, godly people, loved them dearly. But as I said, none of us are immune from hypocrisy. So during lunch, this deacon proceeded to like berate his neighbor because his neighbor was a pastor. And this pastor of this church, last Sunday, believe it or not, you know what that, that pastor was doing? 
Sunday afternoon, he was cutting grass. On the Sabbath. And this chairman of the deacon just, just couldn't believe it. What's the world coming to? We're working on the Sabbath. And y'all, the irony was so thick right then you could cut it with a knife. I mean, we're sitting there in the western sizzling and this man is gouging out on, on steak and baked potato. Listen, that some worker cooked for him when? Not the day before, but that day on Sunday. Do you see how it works when we start looking down our long noses at other people and, and trying and condemning other people without first looking at ourselves? I think we all understand that. And by the way, um, this is not a message on, on judging, but I think it's important to say this, that it's untrue that we are not to judge others. Oftentimes we pull that Bible verse out, right? Judge not lest ye be judged. Those are Jesus' words, absolutely. But Jesus is not, he's not talking about judging. He's talking about the sin of being judgmental, right? You know the difference? Of course we're to judge. I'll ask um, CJ and Megan, you're like, oh, hold on, why are you calling on me? But um, so you got two little kids. You know, if you happen to, like, one night want to go out on a date or something like that, and you're going to have, you're like laughing, like, that don't happen no more. Uh, huh? Okay. But, but so you get, get ready to go on a date. Are, are you going to really pay attention to who it might be that you, let's just say you're going to have a babysitter. Does that matter? Are you just going to, Anybody? Anybody? No, you're judgmental, right? I mean, not judgmental, but you are judging who are you going to leave uh, your son and daughter with. We do that all the time. But in the church, we are called to judge others. We're, we're called to, to see sin for what it is, to call sin for what it is. Uh, why? We're to call out sinful attitudes and actions, but for the purpose of healing and restoration. But y'all listen, Jesus' teaching is plain. But we're only to do this, we're only to see that little speck in someone else's eye when we first pull the log out of our own. Right? So Jesus is not, not saying don't, don't judge. He is saying we are to judge within the local body. But make sure you're not being judgmental. Well, in verse, five, verse 4 of this, what is really a diatribe, you can hear this Jew saying, well listen, Paul, I hear what you're saying, but we've been blessed. I mean, we found favor with God, right? So it, the obvious, obviously that God loves us and is taking care of us and we're not going to be judged. And Paul says, don't confuse God's goodness with His judgment. Don't you understand that God's goodness right now is leading you to repentance? It's really similar to Jesus' disciples. Remember the, the disciples and the rich man and, and the rich man can't get into heaven and, the, and Jesus says, it's, it, you know, the rich man's not going to get into heaven. It's easier for the camel to, to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to get into heaven. And the disciples are like amazed. How can that be? Why were they so amazed? They were amazed because the disciples' thinking was that a rich person, it was a sign that God was favoring that person. 
And so surely if God favored that person on this side of eternity, then he or she was favored for the other side of eternity. But what Paul is talking about here is, look, don't look at how well you might have it on this side of eternity and associate that with how God sees you to the next. You look at how you're standing on this side of eternity and be reminded that God is good and gracious and kind and merciful. And the only way, though, that you'll ever spend eternity in heaven with Him is to repent on this side of eternity. That's what he says in verse 4. And those who refuse to repent are simply storing up wrath for Judgment Day. One of the greatest sermons ever preached, he preached it over a thousand times, was a message called Payday Someday by Dr. R.G. Lee. That was in the 1940s, 1950s. Some of you might have even heard it preached before. You can go online and hear him. I'd encourage you to do that someday. But and he's, it's, the sermon's about Jezebel, and it's a pretty amazing sermon. But at the very end, uh, summing up that message about God's retributive justice, he says this, Payday someday. God said it, and it was done. Yes, and from this we learn the power and certainty of God in carrying out His own retributive providence that men might know that His justice slumbers not. Even though the mill of God grinds slowly, it grinds to powder. Yes, the judgments of God often have leaden heels and travel slowly, but they always have iron hands and crush completely. Some of you are going right now, you're going, hold on, we're not even finished point number one. You say there's three and it's already 15 after 11. We're going to be here till like forever. Well, the next two points go pretty quickly. But don't skip over that. In, in essence, what I've just told you is what Paul has just said. He says, God judges truthfully. He sees through the smoke screen. He sees through the hypocrisy. And when it all comes to pass and you're standing before a holy God, He sees beyond all of that stuff. You got it? God judges truthfully. But second, in verses 6-11, through 11, we see God judges equitably. He judges equitably or evenly or equally. Verse 6 says this, He will render to each one according to his works. Now what we have, I want to explain this to you. Some, see, in, in, the, in the Bible days, I mean, they didn't have like yellow where they could, un, they could highlight stuff or they, couldn't, they didn't underline things. They didn't have italics or whatever. So they used rhetorical devices. They used ways of, of wording stuff that would draw attention or emphasize um, certain points that they want to make. For instance, this one, can you just put that whole thing on the screen there, um, verses 6 through 11? So here's, here's, just follow what we're going on here. I'm just going to summarize each of these verses. Um, the first verse says this, God will judge all people equitably. That's verse 6. Verse 7 uh, will say this, eternal life for those who do good is what verse 7 says. Verse 8 counters that and says this, indignation and wrath to the disobedient. So, so far, that's how we're seeing it. Uh, God's going to, He's going to judge everything equally, eternal life for those people who do good, but indignation and wrath to the disobedient. But in verse 9, look what He says. Verse 9, it says, wrath to evil workers. Wrath to evil workers. And then verse 10, glory to those who work good. And then we finish out in verse 
uh, 11, God judges impartially. So leave that up on the screen there for a second. So what you have there is, is a, a rhetorical device called a chiasm. All right? And so you see uh, like verse 6 and verse 11 are linked together. Verse 7 and verse 10, they're linked together. Verse 8 and 9 are linked together. You see how that's done. So oftentimes in these chiasms, you find them all throughout Scripture. But oftentimes in the chiasm, the way you understand the main point that the author is getting home is the ones in the middle, right? Whatever the two in the middle are, it's just kind of like, uh, it's like that's what he's trying to get at. Well, this one is a little bit different. The main point that he's getting at are the two on the outer edge. It's, it's form of parentheses, right? An inclusio. One parenthesis here is verse 6. God will judge all people equitably. Verse 11, the other end of the parentheses, God judges impartially. Y'all got that? I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? And then you can see verse 7 and verse 10, they're linked together. What happens to, to some people? Eternal life. God will give eternal life to those who do good. Verse 10, God will give glory to workers of good. And now as you get to the middle of that, God is going to give indignation and wrath to the disobedient, wrath to the evil workers, verses 8 and 9. So that's called a chiasm. Now, there's some of little theologians in the congregation today who are looking at this and they're going, hold on. Um, most preachers I've heard around here, and I've heard you too, say that we're not going to be justified by our good works. But right there, it's telling me God's going to judge everybody. He's going to judge everybody equally. And He's going to give eternal life to those who've done good. And He's going to give indignation and wrath to those who do evil. What does that mean? You ever thought about that? We were on our way to see our, um, our grandson play uh, soccer this week. And I, I was driving, I asked him, I said, get out your phone and open up your Bible and read these verses and tell me what it means. And she opened it up. And it says this in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. But to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also to the Greek, and I'm sitting there, man, stop it! Because that describes me. Verse 10, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So what do we do with that? How are we to interpret that? Well, there are two main ways. There are a whole bunch of ideas out there, but there are two basic main biblical ways to interpret, especially verses 7, 10, and we've not even read 13. Let me just read verse 13, because verse 13 fits right in there. Verse 13 says this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law 
will be justified. Do y'all understand the import of what I'm trying to get across to you right now? Do you understand? Are you feeling a tension? Not like a tension. I mean, a tension. Are you, are, you, are, you here, are you feeling it like, hold on, you're, you're, you know, I've always heard it's by grace we're saved through faith and not by works. But now here, here it's very plain. It's saying the only way to get eternal life is by good works. <laughs> I'm tempted to just say amen, sermon's over and leave it there. See who gives me a call this week. Well, there's two ways to interpret it. Number one, who, who, is it, who, who is the Bible talking about in verses 17 and 13? One way of interpreting that is the Bible is talking about Christians. For after all, only those in Christ are able to persevere and do good. So, we're not saved by good works. But the good works that we do after we say are saved are proof positive that we are justified and we've been enabled by the Holy Spirit to live good lives. Does that make sense to y'all? So this interpretation is consistent with other teaching in God's Word for Ephesians 2.10 For we are His creation, we are God's creation, created in Christ Jesus beforehand, and God created all of these works so that we would walk in them. Um, so, so that kind of jives with Ephesians 3. So only Christians are able to patiently continue and do good. But another way of interpreting that, verses 7 and 10 and 13, is saying that it describes everybody. It describes all people. And in that interpretation, it would go something like this. These verses, they list the requirements to gain eternal life, and they're spelled out here, and they are valid here. Only those people who meet the qualifications of verses 7, 10, and 13 will be justified. So you understand? So, so these verses are, are legitimate, they apply, and they apply to everybody, and only those people who meet those qualifications will be justified. There's a problem. Nobody can meet those qualifications. The, this interpretation presumes chapter 3, verse 20. Turn over, look in your Bible to chapter 3, verse 20. We'll get there in a, in a week or two. But verse 20 of chapter 3 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here, the law is valid, but no one's able to fulfill the requirements of 7, 10, and 13. Does that make sense to you? Um, so you say, which one of those is preferred? I want to, before I press on that, I just want to make sure you get this. Is anybody unsure of what I've just said? Or, or willing enough to go, you know, I don't, I don't quite get it. Because I, I want us to grasp this together. Okay? So the, the very first interpretation, it's, we're talking about verses 6 through 11, in Romans chapter 2, and it's talking about there's going to be a judgment, and when judgment's all said and done, God's going to give eternal life to people who've done good. To people who've not done good, to those people who've done evil, there's going to be hell. 
Okay? One way of interpreting that is to say, um, well, the people who do good, they can't do it on their own, but they've been born again. God has raised them from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Holy Spirit of God is now living within Christians so that Christians, not perfectly, but Christians keep the law because they are in Christ. Okay? That's one way of looking at this. The other way is to say, yes, these verses are absolutely true. Only those who keep the law and keep these things perfectly, those are the people that God is going to reward with eternal life. But the problem is, no one is able to keep those rules. So it will drive us to Christ. Okay, I spent a lot of time there, but um, so which is preferred? Which one of those interpretations are preferred? I don't think it has to be either or. I think it can very easily be both and. So here's the point. Only those people who are in Christ are justified. And get this. We're saved by good works. But not your good works. By His. Yes, we're saved by works, but the works are Christ's. Alright. Don't, I know I went a long time there, but, but don't miss the main point. The main point is clear. It makes no difference to God whether you're a Jew and you've received the law in writing, or whether you're a Gentile and you know the truth on your heart. It's not those who hear or possess the law. It's those who do it that are justified. That's the main point. So, God, the righteous judge, judges truthfully, number one. He judges equitably, number two. But finally, God judges justly. We see that in verses 12 through 16. We'll go through this really quickly. But in verses 12 through 15, Gentiles will perish because they didn't keep the law that was written on their hearts. We saw that last week. They suppressed the truth and do what they know is, is wrong and don't do what they know is good. But Jews will be judged from the law and doing, not having the law, is what counts. And that's in verse 13. So you get to verse 16, and verse 16 summarizes the sobering truth. So I want you to just listen. to I'm going to read verse 16 and look at it just briefly. Look at it says this. On that day when... According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So what do we take from that verse? Four things, briefly. Number one, judgment day is coming. It's inevitable. You don't put it off. Number two, Jesus Christ will judge all people. Number three, not just our outer actions, which can fool people, but the secrets of our hearts will be exposed. Does that scare you in any way? So our secret jealousies, covetousness, lustings, you name it, our secrets will be Judged. How about this? Ulterior motivations for doing good. We can do a lot of good things 
and yet our motivations are ulterior, that will be judged. We can do good things in church. But God's going to see, and God sees our hearts, and He knows why we're doing it. And why you do that? Because you fear man more than you fear God, maybe. Everything will be judged. Everything that we've ever done or thought when nobody's around to watch, that will be judged. God's standard, number four, is truth. God's not going to grade on the curve. Man, in, in class, in school, especially like in college and high school, I hated curve busters. You know the curve busters, right? Most of us would make like 60 or 70. We're like, okay, but the curve, we're going to get a B out of that. And somebody somewhere made a 99. God's not grading on the curve. God's not going to lump us all in there, all there together. Uh, he sees and He knows the truth. So where do we stand? Let me just close with this illustration. Hopefully it'll make sense to you. Let's just say, um, all right, Wyatt, I'll pick on you a little bit. How many kids do y'all have? You got two. Two boys? Boy and a girl, okay? Boy and a girl. Um, so... Um, so let's just say, I'm just making this up, um, Wyatt's doing good, he, he's, he's got a good job and everything, and life's just going well, and you know, everybody thinks highly of Wyatt, which is true, man, what I know of you, everybody thinks high, highly of Wyatt, and Brittany is his wife, and all good people, and one day he's just coming home from work, and um, something happens, he, he just sneezes, and, and loses control of his, of his automobile, and hits a pedestrian. And didn't mean to, but one thing leads to another, and uh, and now lawsuit after lawsuit, and and now his livelihood is is affected. Things are just going awry in his life, all because he sneezed, right? And just things don't seem to be going well. And next thing you know, he's out of a job because he's so far behind in, in his payments. And now and he's he's desperate, doesn't know what to do, and and he just figures out. Man, I got to take care of my family. I got to take care of Brittany and my son and my daughter. And so he goes into um, what's a bank around here? Like, what's a good bank around here to rob? Just joking. I mean, like one that's a lot of money. One that's got a lot of money. What? Uh, what's a good bank? I mean, a lot of money. First citizens. I'm told they show these things on TV sometimes. Uh, so if you work at First Citizen, anywhere, this is all in jest. All in jest, getting that on all in jest, right? But uh, you, you, you decide, White decides, man, he says, I, I, I need money, I need it desperate, I, I mean, I'm not a bad person, but he goes to First Citizen and he goes in there and he robs the bank and gets that money and puts it all away and he, he leaves and he gets home and he starts counting that money. He's got a couple of million dollars. I know they probably don't have that much here, but a couple million dollars. He's home and he's like, man, this is great. All of a sudden, his conscience starts weighing on him. He's like, man, that's not right. And to make a long story short, Wyatt turns himself in. And he goes before a judge. 
And a judge is sitting up there on the bench. He's looking down there and sitting behind Wyatt. And y'all hadn't had a lot of food in a while, right? You, you've been, you know, so Wyatt's, Wyatt's down there. And uh, Brittany's sitting behind him on a little bench like that. You can see it. The judge sitting up here. Here's Wyatt standing there in the dock. And uh, Brittany and their two little kids sitting there all emaciated looking, shriveling because they're cold. They don't have much. And the judge is looking down there. And he's got this, suddenly this judge has compassion in his heart for this man who, who for, for lack of anything else, the only thing in life that, that was a misfortune that happened to him was he happened to sneeze at the wrong time. And so that judge, he sees that, he understands that if you wouldn't have sneezed, you wouldn't have done all those kind of things and and I have compassion for you because I, I see your wife and your children back there and I love you and I so want you to have everything that you really should have. There's a problem, Wyatt. I'm the judge. And I've sworn to uphold the integrity of the law. And the law is, you committed a class A felony. You walked into a bank with a weapon. And I cannot simply let you go. Why? Because if I do that, I am no longer the judge. If I do that, the law no longer makes sense. It's no longer law. So why, and I'm sorry, as much compassion I have for you and I have for your family, I must sentence you to life in prison with no chance for parole. God is kind of on the outside, sort of, kind of in a similar position if you think about it. God is on His throne, He's judging there are some dissimilarities here. We won't go into all that, but, but we're standing before a holy God and God has passion for us and He, he wants us to, to live with Him in heaven eternally. And He so wants to just let us in. But listen, God doesn't just wink at our sin. If God just says, well, your sin is okay, just come on in. What's the problem with that? When He does that, God is no longer God. God's law is no longer God's law. It's just His whims. You see, God has to uphold the integrity of the law. And y'all, when we stand before a holy God, we all fall short. I don't care how many good works we've done. We're all in the dock and we're all guilty. God says, and the Bible says, that God is not only just, which is what I just described, but He's the justifier. How does He do that? You know the story. God sends His Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is God in the flesh. And He lives and He keeps all of the law. He never had a wrong thought. He never had an ill motive. He never lusted. Any of those things... Our Lord was perfect. And He died on a cross as a substitute in your place and in my my place. And God the Father raised God the Son from the grave to prove that what He did on this earth was valid, was justified. And my sin has been forgiven. God is just and God is the justifier. So in the example I was giving about Wyatt, Wyatt's standing there and the judge is saying, I'm forced 
to send you, what did I say? Life imprisonment, no parole. And then the judge, judge stands up and walks down, takes off his robe and says, I'm taking your place. I'm going to bear the penalty that you so justly deserved. Y'all, that's who our God is. You know, the, the thief on the cross, one of the thieves got it right. There's three men hanging on the cross. There's Jesus, the ultimate judge, the pure judge. He's dying. He's hanging there. One of the thieves is like, if he could, he could reach over to Jesus and says, if you're who you say you are, get yourself down and get us down. The other thief, listen, the other thief talks to the thief who just grabbed Jesus by the lapel and he says, don't you understand who you're talking to? This man has done nothing. This man is innocent. We on the other hand, are guilty. He looks at Jesus. He says, Lord, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's who we are. May not a person walk out of this building today being unsure of where you will spend eternal eternity. As we sing this last song, um, if you so need, you want someone to pray with or, or whatever it might be, I'll be across the hall in this room ready to receive you. But let's stand, church, and let's sing not only from our minds, but from our hearts to the living God.